Blog Talk Radio. Options that at first 
<clears throat> we all thought we would crash and burn. But now the problem is who he takes down with him. Uh, Mr. Trump has long reveled in controversy and was a champion of the birther movement, that question whether Barack Obama was born in, in America. But it was his comments about Mexican immigrants when he declared his candidacy that have dominated attention. Mexico is sending people that have lots of problems, and we're bringing those problems with them, he said. And they're bringing drugs, and they're bringing crime, and they're rapists, and they're... And they, and he added uh, as an afterthought, and some I assume are good people. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Trump's rivals yeah. in the race were at first unsure how to respond. Marco Rubio, the Florida senator and son of Cubano immigrants, finally on Thursday called the comments not just defensive and inaccurate, but also divisive. Jeb Bush, whose wife is Mexican and who delivered his declaration speech in English and Spanish, supports creating a path for legalizing the status of undocumented immigrants, said. His remarks do not represent the values of the Republican Party, and they do not represent my values. The latest to distance himself from Mr. Trump is NASCAR, the motor racing body, which said it could no longer use one of his hotels for its end-of-the-season awards. Speaking to Fox News yesterday, Mr. Trump's 69, said he was surprised by NASCAR's decision and at the strength of a backlash, but he knew it was going to be bad because all my life I have been told, if you are successful, you don't run for office, he said. I didn't know it was going to be this severe, but he defended his stance and said he had become a whipping post for speaking up on immigration and crime. The lone fellow candidate to speak up for Mr. Trump was Ted Cruz. Uh, the Texas senator whose father is Cuban saying he speaks the truth. This is what attracts grassroots supporters such as Ken Crow, a leader of the Tea Party in the first, I can't see that, leader of the Tea Party. And the first voting caucus of Iowa. He reeled off a list of reasons why he was backing Mr. Trump. He says, Americans are sick and tired of corrupt government and career politicians. That's true. We will straighten out the economy and defend our borders. Americans want a John Wayne right now, someone who will be a champion of our country. The Trump candidacy is playing up strands between um, Tea Party activists and senior party figures and Mr. Fleischer adding that his comments were irresponsible and hurtful. And John Weaver, an advisor on McCain's, John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign, noted, I remember growing up in Kermit, Texas. Every time the carnival came to town, it drew a big crowd. But nobody wanted the carnival barker to be mayor. All right? So, anyway, that's the way the Republicans are handling poor Mr. Trump. But, you know, Trump doesn't care. He don't uh-uh. give a damn. He don't care. I've got a, I've got something else here. Maybe I, I think I shared that. But anyway, uh, let's see. What's this one? Oh yeah, <laughs> this one is really now. Labor battles heat up in state legislatures. Now, I, I this is really, um, this is this right to work crap is really starting to get to me. All right. You know, it is. It's the right to work for less. Yeah. Thousands of protesters rallied outside the state capitol on frigid temperatures in February to express their anger before the state senate voted. The assembly heated, uh, held a heated all-night debate, but in the end, the Republican-nominated Wisconsin legislature passed a right-to-work measure this session, making it the 25th state to enact such a law. Well, Wisconsin was this year poster child for labor-related welfare, uh, warfare in state capitals. Scott Walker who, uh, Governor Strawaku, who already had whacked collective bargaining rights to most public sector workers in 2011, has skyrocketed as a top tier of Republican presidential candidates, largely because of his anti labor efforts. His rise is a vivid illustration of how strongly Republicans feel about this issue. But Wisconsin is only one of about two dozen states where members of Republican led majorities in one of both chambers introduced either right-to-work bills aimed at preventing workers from being forced to pay union dues or measures to roll back prevailing wage laws that establish workers' pay on public projects. In the end, right-to-work advocates scored some wins and suffered several defeats. 
Only two states, Wisconsin and Missouri, passed bills. Although Democratic Governor Jay Nixon vetoed Missouri's, at least three states, Indiana, Nevada, and West Virginia, repealed or scaled back prevailing wage laws. The battle this year over legislation perceived as free market initiatives by proponents and anti-union by foes reflect the tremendous power that Republicans have gained in state capitals following November's elections and the declining political clout of organized labor in many states. I think it's part of a long run, longer-run trend, said David McPherson, a labor economist who chairs the economics department at Trinity University in San Antonio. Republicans have got more control of legislators and governors than the Democrats do. That's going to help these laws get passed. It's the rise of Republicans and the decline of private unions. Mm -hmm. Thirty states have both legislative chambers controlled by Republicans. Twenty-three of them also have Republican governors. The growth and excitement we've seen on the issue is very positive, said Patrick Siemens, spokesman for the National Right to Work Committee. Unions are a very powerful influence group. They spend a lot of money on politics and lobbying. We see Republicans are willing to take on these issues because they're not worried about losing the political money support that unions often give Democrats. Labor organizations that oppose such laws say that while a handful of states may have enacted some anti-union bills this session, many rejected them. And they say a growing number of Republicans are turning against legislation that would hurt union members. In Missouri, for example, nearly two dozen Republicans voted against a right-to-work measure that ultimately passed the legislature. In New Hampshire, 29 Republicans voted against a right-to-work bill that passed the House by a three-vote margin, but was defeated in the Senate in a 12-to-12 deadlock. Two Republicans voted no. I think there's growing awareness amongst many Republican legislators that passing right-to-work bills doesn't help the struggling middle class. They do just the opposite, said Brian Weeks, political director for the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, the largest public service employee union in the U.S., with 1.6 million active and retired members. Attacking the institution of unions and working people is clearly not the answer to help rise, raise wages in this country. That's true. It says work, right to work battleground is Washington. I'm surprised Washington. Inter- it's introduced. One is introduced in Washington. I don't. I mean, Washington is legalizing marijuana. I can't see it doing the uh, introduced. Yeah, introduced. Montana is introduced. Uh, Colorado. Colorado and New Mexico. Mexico. Illinois. Wisconsin and Missouri have passed it, and Illinois, Kentucky, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Maine, Connecticut, and Maine, New Hampshire, all have right-to-work bills. New Jersey. They um, don't have them. They're being introduced. They're being introduced, yeah. They're not. No, no, they're they're not. They don't have them, but they're all introduced. Kentucky, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Delaware, uh, uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, New Hampshire and Maine. Holy mm. crap! I didn't realize yeah, yeah. Uh, we live in Connecticut. And I didn't realize I there didn't was know that one. There was one coming up. No, no, we did not know. No. Right to work battles. Some of this legislative session's uh, most heated battles revolved around right to work laws, which prohibit workers from being compelled to pay union fees uh, or dues as a condition of employment. This, I mean, if it's a closed union shop, you know, that's what that's what it's supposed to be, right? Not supposed to, you're not supposed to have scag workers, you know. The uh, struggle over right to work has been politically polarizing and bitter. Both sides uh, cite studies showing how such laws affect wages, growth, job growth, and state economies. The session right to work bills were introduced in 16 states, some uh, from Colorado to Maine. In some, the measures didn't even get a hearing. In others, they were debated but couldn't muster enough votes. In a few, they passed one chamber but failed in the other. In New Mexico, for example, a bill supported by Republican Governor Susana Martinez passed the Republican-dominated House but was blocked in committee in the Senate, which is controlled by Democrats. In Missouri, 
the Republican-controlled legislature passed a right-to-work measure, but it was vetoed by Nixon, who called it a threat to unionize workers and, may, and wages. Supporters will try to override the veto in September, but neither side thinks there'll be enough votes. A 17th state, Virginia, where both chambers have Republican majorities, already has a right-to-work statute. Legislatures there went a step further, passing a resolution to add the language to the state constitution. It would need to be approved again by both chambers next session before it could appear on the November 2016 ballot. Right-to-work proposals also cropped up in other states this year outside of the legislatures. In Ohio, a special commission of legislatures and citizens that is reviewing the state's constitution was asked to consider a proposal that would add right-to-work language. A committee and then the full commission would have to approve an amendment to be forwarded to the legislature, which could then put it on the ballot. In Oregon, a petition drive to put right-to-work on the ballot initiative was launched but later withdrawn. This is going on. Yeah. Let's just say that uh, it's a dangerous situation, and I just realized now that we had one in Connecticut, which just snuck right in here. Yeah. You know, we got a right to work. Maybe, maybe it was brought up and then discarded. I don't know. It could have been, but it was introduced anyway. Yeah, so and I was it. unaware of that. Yeah, it makes me, me feel really ignorant Yeah. yeah. to but be talking about it and not I even know but, that. You know, it's President, uh, you know, Larry, Larry didn't, didn't have We'll have to ask him about that. You know, maybe it was, like, know. brought up and but had we very little. We haven't talked to Larry for, for about a month or so now, so it's been. Yeah, uh, but he's on, on vacation when yeah, he comes back. In a couple of weeks, but uh, we'll, we'll ask I'd like there. I'd like to introduce uh, again Jim Webb. I mentioned him before, but Jim Webb announced on uh, July 3rd that he was running for president. And Jim Webb uh, was the uh, senator for Virginia, Democratic senator for Virginia, and uh, Secretary of Defense under Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. Yeah, but, uh, he must have been very young at the time. He was in his 40s, yeah. But uh, anyway, we all want the American dream. Not, this is was his, his opening quote, statement. Says yeah. we all want the American dream. Unending opportunity at the top. If you put things together and you make it, absolute fairness along uh, the the way, and a safety net underneath. You if you fail on hard times, if you fall on hard times or suffer disability, or as you reach your retirement years. That's the American trifecta, opportunity, fairness, and security. And that's what his, his platform is basically about, uh, some, of the, some of the aspects of it. Uh, I was really kind of surprised, you know, that, uh, well, he said this before, but he, he's just an asshole. But he's a Democrat asshole, and his name is uh, Jim Carvel. But he says, Democrat James Carvel says 80% of Democrats are politically brain dead. I think I mentioned this before when you mentioned it, but he yeah. said they were all sheep. Well, Sheeple. Yeah. But he actually came out again and he said they were 80% brain dead, which is true. They're all, they're all, if, if that's, if she, if Hillary is the front runner, they're all brain dead, you know? Well, he must have, they must have taken this thing down because it's, it's not a... Not popping up. Not popping up. Oh, oh, there it is. Uh, this is from Americans Freedom Fighters. Yeah. Uh, Democrat James Carvel says 80% of Democrats are politically brain dead. And admittedly, this is an older quote, but I feel that since we are headed into what is likely the most important presidential election of our lifetime, I feel this is definitely worth bringing back into the spotlight. I do agree that most people do not pay enough attention to politics or even have enough common sense uh, to pick the right candidate to support. But... I would be willing to wager that the number of Republicans and others on the right are not anywhere near what James Carvel has stated about the Democratic Party. Former Bill Clinton campaign manager and um, Democrat operative James Carvel actually came out and said that all of us on the right have known for years. Democrats are basically clueless politically, easily manipulated by lies and false promises and liken them to a herd of cows. Mm, Yeah. Ideologies aren't all that important. What's important is psychology. 
The Democratic constituency is just like a herd of cows. All you have to do is lay out enough silage and they come running. That's why I became an operative working with Democrats. With Democrats, all you have to do is make a lot of noise, lay out the hay, and be ready to use the old cattle prod in case a few want to bolt the herd. Eighty percent of the people who call themselves Democrats don't have a clue as to political reality. What amazes me is that you could take a group of people who are hard workers and convince them that they should support social programs that were the exact opposite of their own personal convictions. Put a little fear here and there, and you can get people to vote any way you want. Can you use that? Well, the reason I became... The voter is basically dumb and lazy. The reason I became a Democratic operative instead of a Republican was because there were more Democrats that didn't have a clue than there were Republicans. Truth is relative. Truth is what you can make the voters believe is the truth. If you're smart enough, truth is what you make the voter think it is. That's why I'm a Democrat. I can make the Democratic voters think whatever I want them to. I ask you to take a moment and realize that this man says these things about the party he has been a part of almost his entire life, and to please pass this on to the next sheeple you may see who is posting um, memos or campaigning for people like for Hillary Clinton, the liberal ideologies are taking our nation down the road to room, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but anyway. Oh, side note, Carvel's office denies he made these com- comments, and Snoops couldn't verify either way and was re- and was rated undermined. Undetermined. Undetermined, excuse me. Left out loud. Yes. So, yeah, so basically that, that's, that's what he said. I wonder when he said that. This was a while back. I read it last. This was uh, June 10th when this came out. But I remember... No, I remember reading this uh, probably this spring when he actually said it. Mm-hmm. He was he was taking he was told what he said. So the same it was the same thing. Uh, spread their shame at the very last minute. Arizona State Senators Don McCain and Jeff Flake just snuck a provision into a must-pass military funding bill that gave away holy Apache land to an Australian British mining company. It plans to turn it into a 1,000-foot deep crater. It is the first time in American history that Congress has handed over a public, sacred Native American site to a foreign-owned multinational corporation. Imagine wonder what the hell they pay them. Yeah. Yeah. What the hell did they pay these guys to do this? It's just unbelievable. Ah. Today, on the first anniversary of the start of Israel's Brutal attack on Gaza. Ken Loeb, P.J. Harvey, John Pilner, and many more called for an end to uh, U.K.'s arms sales to Israel. I thought we used to. I thought yeah, we used to. Yeah, I can't believe that the spread well, of the wall, though. Oh, but you know what? It's with our money that we've. Uh, that they're buying them from. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're giving them the money to buy stuff from, from, from other countries. Yeah. Uh, Oh, doesn't that make sense, folks? Oh, yeah, just unreal. <sighs> Writers, filmmakers, musicians, artists support the boycott campaign and call on UK government to stop arms sales to Israel. Wednesday, June 8th, July 8th, rather, is the first anniversary of the start of Israel's brutal assault on Gaza. Widespread horror by the massacre led to an unprecedented pressure on the government. But Palestinians need concrete results, particularly those in Gaza who are still suffering the consequences of Israel's illegal and inhumane siege. A a new report released last week by uh, Campaigns Against Arms Trade, War on Want, and the Palestine Solidarity Campaign shows that despite numerous and repeated findings, that point to Israel having committed war crimes. Most recently in its attack on Gaza last year, the UK government's attitude to the arms trade with Israel remains business as usual. Ordinary people who support the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement are taking action in solidarity with Palestinians to highlight the UK government's complicity and end Israeli impunity. On Monday, 
UK factories owned by Israel's biggest arms company, Ebbet Systems, were shut down and prevented from operating by protesters. Good for them. Mm -hmm. Good for them. These included the UAV Engines Factory in Shenstone, Staffordshire, which has given UK government licenses to export drone engines to Israel. We support the protest and wish to use our voice to strengthen their call for the UK government to stop arming Israel. We call for any charges against the 19 people arrested to be dropped. The real criminals here are those making and selling deadly weapons, and we reiterate our collective demand for an immediate two-way arms embargo on Israel. And they got all these guys to sign this. Uh, okay. Oh, so. they have. Anybody you recognize there? Noam Chomsky. Yeah, that's about it. Vandana Shiva. Uh, they read the choir. Yeah, I'm um, Israel's crazed assault on Gaza was 2014 single most haunting and revolting event. Operation Protective Edge was shockingly gratuitous and one-sided strategically and morally senseless and steeped in the most grotesque hypocrisy. There were some years when Gramsci adage uh, about pessimism of the mind and optimism of the will seemed more appropriate than others. In 2014 was a year filled with some pretty awful events, whether it was kidnapped schoolgirls in Nigeria or a summer in which more migrants drowned in the Mediterranean than ever. In Ukraine, the geopolitical test of strength between Russia and NATO triggered a vicious new conflict with the potential to turn into something even bigger and nastier. In Syria, there's no end in sight to a war that was clearly that clearly cannot be won by anyone, which none of the protagonists of their various backers seem to have a serious interest in bringing to an end. 2014 was also a year in which she saw the rise of ISIS in Syria and Iraq, a stunningly brutal and savage organization whose startling assault on a corrupt and disintegrating Iraqi state was clearly due as much to the weaknesses of its opponents as it was to its own strength. These successes were nevertheless used as a pretext to yet another of the West's strategically incoherent humanitarian wars even as older intervention in Afghanistan came to an utterly ignominious end, despite the attempts by both the American and British governments to present failure as victory. When I look back on the mayhem of the last 12 months, however, the single most haunting and revolting event for me remains the Israel crazed assault on the Gaza Strip. I know that more people were killed in other conflicts, most notably in Syria and Iraq, but Operation Protective Edge was so shockingly gratuitous and, and one-sided, so striking, strategically and morally senseless, and so steeped in the most grotesque hypocrisy on the part of Israel and the international community which allowed it to take place, that it should never be forgotten, even by the standards of our ongoing age of cruelty. It was a war that the Netanyahu government wanted to happen and which it deliberately concocted through a cynical campaign of lies, deceit, and manipulation because it wanted to act tough and give the Palestinians a kicking. Huh. It was a war which, in the end, achieved nothing at all to inflict even more, except to inflict more punishment and devastation on our population that has already been pushed to the absolute limit of its resources. Sure, Hamas and the other armed groups made the Israeli army pay a higher price and soldiers when it actually dared enter Gaza. But there was no serious military equivalence in a campaign that was directed against the whole of Gazan society. 2,145 people killed in seven weeks, 60,000 homes destroyed, and more than 100,000 people made homeless. More neighborhoods annihilated in an assault, and 20,000 tons of explosives were fired into one of the most densely populated regions on Earth. All of this was carried out in plain sight and full view of the international media and the uh, Israeli uh, spectators who sat in deck chairs and watched and enjoyed the spectacle. It was a moral disgrace which no amount of Israeli ranting about terrorism and crocodile tears and hang-wringing 
of uh, by Israeli powerful supporters can conceal, and it is probably fitting that the year should come to an end with Israel and the United States colluding in the UN Security Council to overturn yet another Palestinian attempt to bring the uh, Israeli occupation to an end through diplomatic means. In the eyes of the international community, it seems there is nothing that the Palestinians can do to ensure even their most minimal rights, and nothing that Israel cannot do to ensure that they never get them. And a huge outpouring of solidarity with, with Gaza from so many countries shows that many people uh, feel very differently to their, uh, to their government. And when I look back on 2014, I will remember that, too, because, uh, when, uh, because without it, the Palestinians really would be on their own these days. And then mm -hmm. there would be no chance that a people for whom I feel a great deal of admiration and affection will ever find a place on earth where they will no longer be occupied and where they will no longer have to live under the bombs again. That's uh, great, But, the, yeah, it is. But uh, what I was going to say is the, uh, yeah, he wrote this in January uh, of this year, uh, but uh, about Gaza last year. It was horrible what happened to them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely horrible. And I had, uh, I don't know if I have it, but I think I do. And no support? No support. But they had a, but they, a hundred and forty, was it a hundred? There was all, all every country in the UN voted that Israel committed war crimes, except the United States. Uh -huh. But every other one, okay, every other country, 145 or 55 or something like that, voted that Israel had declared had committed a massive war crimes. And, and so, what crimes. did they do about it? Nothing. Nothing. Huh. Here's another one. Uh, this is a warning to you folks, but this lady is a Green Party. <laughs> but, you know, I have to agree with her on Bernie, on Bernie Sanders. Right. Jules Stein, time to reject the lesser evil and stand up for the greater good. Mm -hmm. Americans are growing weary of the status quo, choosing between a duopoly of Wall Street-owned parties and Jill Stein's Green Party offer an alternative? Let's well, see. Let's see what she says. Endless war, crony capitalism, don't disrupt the status quo. It's an American. With the presidential campaign season upon us and the corporate-aligned two-party duopoly dominating the conversation taking place in American media, nothing does change like another Bush or Clinton in the White House. In turn, the media is selling candidates whose agendas don't disrupt the status quo. In this winner-take-all system, voters are left to choose between the lesser of two evils, and Americans are growing weary of this elite political system that does not truly represent us, the people. Indeed, according to a recent Gallup poll, over 58% of Americans believe a third U.S. party is needed because the Republican and Democratic parties, quote-unquote, do such a poor job at representing the American public. From supporting endless war, crony capitalism, the Orwellian police state, apartheid in Israel, and much more, the establishment that drives these policies is not only ignoring the cries for an alternative that will bring about real change and real peace, but it's purposely excluding those third-party candidates out. As the fight for a viable alternative rages on, one woman announced her presidential campaign for a second round on the Green Party ticket. And no, her name isn't Bush or Clinton. It's Dr. Jill Stein. She says her platform prioritizes people, the planet, and peace over profits. But what exactly does that mean, and how does that compare to other candidates who say they will bring about real change this time around? Joining me earlier was Dr. Jill Stein herself, whom I had the pleasure of speaking with about all of this and more. Take a look. So thank you so much, Jill, for joining me today. I appreciate it. Um, you know, your campaign is centered around a platform that claims to put people, the planet, and peace over profits. What, is the, what does that mean in terms of uh, reforming U.S. foreign policy that is so driven by endless war? Endless war? 
goes together with an economy based on profiteering, uh, on um, basically exploiting human resources and natural resources. So we don't have really a Department of Defense. We have a Department of Offense whose uh, purpose, who's really driving um, vision, is that of total economic and military domination. We have wars for oil and we have wars for markets, basically. And we have 700 military bases around the world uh, where we basically have no business being. We are now spending about twice as much on our military as we did um, prior to 2001. And we have not made the world more secure or more democratic or more friendly to the cause of human rights or women's rights or anything else. And we've spent some $4 to $6 trillion over the past decade uh, basically making the world a more explosive place. Clearly, it's time to go back to the drawing board and have a foreign policy that's founded on human rights, international law, and diplomacy. War and violence basically has created more war and violence when there have been many opportunities to address violence and uh, terrorism and so on at its root causes by basically pitting warlords against each other, which is essentially the strategy that the U.S. has put to work in Iraq and Afghanistan and in Libya, you know, uh, and in Syria, we have seen exactly what that leads to, which is greater political vacuum and the creation of even more vicious and violent political forces. So we need to break this cycle of worsening uh, political violence and extremism and begin to have a foreign policy that draws us together and builds coalition uh, around um, you know, basic human rights, international law, and using the forces of finance, of cutting off oil sales uh, on the black market, of mm. stopping the flow of uh, militias across borders, the borders controlled by our supposed allies, um, you know, and pouring our weapons into this cauldron like where they just right. move freely <laughs> from those who are supposed to be our friends to the hands of our worst enemies. So there are many solutions here. They are not rocket science. We need a foreign policy that's not driven by uh, basically promoting U.S. weapons sales and U.S. Mm -hmm. arms industry to a policy that's actually working on behalf of people, planet, and peace. Uh, it is within our hands and within our reach. And speaking of, you know, the economy, a peace economy, and uh, war, let's talk about other candidates like Bernie Sanders, who claim they work for the 99% and not the oligarchy, yet people like him are running on the Democratic uh, ticket. Um, what do you have to say about him and people like him and their platform? Um, yes, and, and Bernie Sanders certainly stands out in that he is addressing many of the critical issues that are also priorities in our campaign um, around uh, economic inequality and, you know, exploitation. Um, but there are critical differences, you know. One is that we're going to be there for the long haul. The Green Party, the Green Party candidate, which I hope very much to be, uh, will not basically uh, pack it in after the primary. We have a party that actually supports this vision as opposed to the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders has already endorsed Hillary Clinton or whoever the Democratic candidate will be, whichever corporate candidate is going to be selected by this corporate process. And, in fact, we've seen through Barack Obama's administration what a supposed progressive can accomplish even if they get elected. You know, Barack Obama, who created the appearance of supporting so many of these progressive policies, you know, completely threw in the towel when he was elected, even despite having two Democratic houses of Congress. So one needs to be very suspicious about what you think can be done within the Democratic Party. And there are several models for what happens to these kind of, you know, idealistic, supposedly idealistic campaigns inside the Democratic Party. At the end of the day, they pledge allegiance to the corporate Democrats, repeating, again, this is what Bernie Sanders has already done on primetime TV. Um, they pledge allegiance, and then the resources of their campaign, basically, and the vision of their campaign, gets folded into a political party run by 
the oligarchy, which is extremely hostile to that vision. So <clears throat> campaigns like Jesse Jackson's and Dennis Kucinich and Al Sharpton, while they may have had some very principled uh, driving forces, at the end of the day, they disappear without a trace, and the party, the Democratic Party, just keeps marching to the right. So we think it's, it's a good time for uh, those people who are considering, you know, trying to push the Democratic Party from the inside, you know, let's not keep repeating the same mistakes of, yeah. you know, of the past 20 years. We need uh, a party that is truly up by and for the people, uh, that is not controlled by the big money behind closed doors, uh, that will basically sabotage those efforts. Let's keep building on this good thing that we've got going outside of the Democratic Party, and I urge people to come to my website, till2016.com, and become part of this enduring solution. And, you know, I understand you're part of a lawsuit that is actually suing the Federal Election uh, Commission to open up debates to independent candidates, which is so insane to think that, that you have to actually sue them uh, for that to even happen. Well, Tell me more about this case really and why good. alternative candidates are excluded. Well, the case is doing exactly what you said. We're suing the Commission on Presidential Debates for basically rigging the, the debate. And if you rig the debates, you basically rig the election. One of many ways, actually, in which the election gets rigged, but it's a very important way. And the Commission on Presidential Debates is assumed by most Americans to be nonpartisan and to um, be operating basically on uh, essential principles of informing the American public who their choices are. But it's actually a private nonprofit corporation run by the Democratic and Republican parties, and their express purpose is to limit the debate to Democrats and Republicans only. And the American people have gone on record over and over again, nearly 60% in most recent polls are clamoring for a third-party option, saying that the Democratic and Republican parties have done such a bad job serving the needs of the people that we need something else. So why not give the American people what they are hungry for? And when the League of Women Voters was basically kicked out uh, back in the 1970s, um, they went on record saying that the Commission on Presidential Debates is basically a fraud being perpetrated on the American public. So we are essentially suing them to comply with the law. The law says that the debate must be nonpartisan. That's not bipartisan, that's nonpartisan, because there is um, a very different point of view that most Americans actually share and are demanding. And I'll just share with you one uh, very compelling you know, experience that made this point to me when I was first tricked into running for office in 2002 when I ran for governor uh, against Mitt Romney and others, we made a lot of noise and actually got into a televised debate. And inside of that debate, I gave voice to the things that I'm hearing from everyday Americans all the time. We should have a right to health care, human rights, a right to uh, quality public education. And we advocate through college, there should be free college. Um, we should be downsizing the military and spending our dollars here at home when we uh, can create true security. We need to respect uh, the rights of the immigrant community and greening the economy to address the crisis of climate change. Those are the things I advocated for back in 2002 in that debate, which was televised and taking place in a, uh, a TV studio. Those ideas went over like lead balloons, as you can imagine, among the other candidates and the moderator. But when we walked out, into the waiting press, I was mobbed for the first time and the last time by the press who told me that I had won the debate on the instant online viewer poll. And you can imagine that was the last time they did an instant online viewer poll during a debate. And they do their best to keep us out. So my point is simply that the American public is already there. We don't have to persuade people. History has changed people's minds. The public is in a very progressive, proactive mood right now, clamoring for change, if we put that change out in front of people in a debate, you know, hold on to your hat, I think all bets are off about where it might go. And it definitely sounds like a people-powered right. campaign, as you're saying. Um, but, you know, for those people who say, you know, if they vote third party, it's a wasted vote, what do, you, what do you say to them? How do you respond to that? Well, there's no greater waste of a vote 
than to keep voting for the two political parties that are throwing you under the bus. And they are clearly doing that. And the Democratic Party, look at its track record. When Barack Obama was elected, and we were in an incredible economic uh, crisis, and Democrats had both houses of Congress. You know, he gave away the store, trillions in bailouts to bankers, um, allowed the foreclosure crisis to continue unabated with millions of people losing their homes, continued expanding the wars, the attack on civil liberties, massively expanded the war on immigrants uh, with deportations and family separations, allowed students to go into deep, deeper debt than ever. Um, you know, so it, it's clear the two parties are not going to do it for us. We need to reject that politics of fear that tells us we have to seal our lips and let the corporate parties do it for us. There's no way, no how they're going to do it for us. We have a choice between a party of uh, people on the planet or a party of, uh, of privilege and power. This is the difference between the Green Party as the third party's integrity and the Democratic and Republican Party. So we're saying it's time to throw out this uh, lesser evil, time to start standing up to the greater good. We need to lead the way. The corporate political parties are not going to do that. And they seek to intimidate us precisely because we have so much power. Currently, there are 40 million young people, millennials, who are in debt due to college education. Our students now, or they were, 40 million people could come out to vote green in the presidential election in 2016 to abolish debt. They could come out to abolish debt, and my campaign is the only one that is saying, I think it should be. We're not just going to change the terms of your repayment plan, which is what even Bernie Sanders is saying. We're saying we're going to abolish that debt, as well as making public higher education free. If 40 million students came out determined to do that, that alone could determine the outcome of the election in a three-way race. 40 million people is enough to win it. So it's time for us to reject the propaganda of powerlessness, to stand up with the true power that we have, understanding that whether we win the office or not, we can win the day and lay the groundwork for many wins in our local communities. We can empower those races and those challenges at all levels of government and lay the groundwork for winning uh, all offices eventually, including turning the White House into a greenhouse. This power is in our hands. We need to step up and use it. Go to our website, jill2015.com, and um, join the revolt. And you're right. I mean, if over 50% of Americans believe that the Democrats and Republicans don't actually work for them, just imagine if they followed their heart and went and voted for a third-party candidate, whether it be Green Party or Libertarian Party, uh, what kind of statement that would send. Um, thank you so much, Jill, for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Good to see you again, and hopefully we'll hear more from you soon, and best of luck. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lenar. Look forward to talking. I think she's a Massachusetts Green. And she said she ran in Massachusetts for governor. Yeah. Um, so it would I, be, what did you think of that, Leo? Well, because she's green, she doesn't have a chance in hell. But because she's, uh, I mean, but, you know, she, she's I right. think she's right about she's what right she about said. All these issues. But because she's a greenie. But she's also right about the parties. There's Bernie Sanders, who has a lot right. of great but stuff I, to say. Do, Jim do. Webb. Well, and they all yeah. disappear. Once no, but I mean. She's a lot better as an advocate or as a candidate than Cynthia McKinney there. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was like, well, she, she was, you know, yeah. Ridiculous. But anyway, we, uh, we're going to move on here. We're going to ask you one more. We got to see, Unite to Stop the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement. Uh, multinational trade agreement that benefits corporate agribusiness. It will abolish GMO labels as a barrier to trade, allows corporations to sue countries for lost profits for banning GMOs, will lower international safety, food safety standards, and will promote GMO seed monopolies. I mean, what the hell are we doing here? I mean, what, why are they passing this Anyway, I was sent this today by Occupy Together, and it said, those who stand for nothing fall for anything. Boy, that's 
Congress set aside $435 million for tanks last year, only to be told that the military doesn't need or want them. They were built anyway because their primary contractor, uh, General Dynamics, spent $11 million lobbying Congress. That's enough to pay for 169 million free school lunches. Imagine that, folks. Here's another quote. Uh, in the age of information, ignorance is a choice. Boy, that is so true. Here's something you want to mention on your... Um, this is pretty weird. How long does it take to decompose? You know, we do our environmental issues here usually on every night. But uh, paper towels. It takes two to four weeks for a paper towel to disintegrate. Banana peels take three to four weeks. Paper bag takes one month. Newspaper takes one and a half months. And apple core takes two months. I do not. I thought that would be eaten up right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, cardboard takes two months. Cotton gloves, three months. Orange peels take six months to decompose. Wow. Uh, plywood, one to three years. Wool sock. I don't know what a wool sock is. But, wool, a sock made out of wool. Oh, is that was a wool sock, like a wool sock? Yeah. Oh, that's a wool sock. No. One to five years. Milk cartons, uh, five years. Cigarette butts, 10 to 12 years. Wow. Leather shoes, 25 to 40 years. Tinned steel cans, 50 years. Foamed plastic cups, 50 years. Rubber boots sold, 50 to 80 years. Plastic containers, 50 to 80 years. Aluminum cans, 200 to 500 years. Plastic bottles, 450 years. Disposable diapers, 550 years. Monofilament fishing line, 600 years. Plastic bags, 200 to 1,000 years. I don't know. No, I can't. I don't know. It takes 200 to 1,000 years for plastic bags, but... For plastic containers, it only takes 50 to 80 years. Different way it's made, I guess. Hmm. All the plastic, I don't know. Interesting. Don't be afraid to be open-minded. Your brain isn't going to fall <laughs> out. <laughs> That's cute. Uh, okay. Climate denier caucuses. Now, this is interesting because it breaks down. There are 127 climate deniers in Congress. Ninety-seven percent of climate scientists say climate change is real. Ninety percent of Republican House and Senate leadership denies it. Seventy-seven percent of Republicans on the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology deny climate change. Oh, well, so great! Bizarre, isn't, it? isn't it good that they're I, on the? Uh, yeah, I thought that was so strange, though. Didn't it? A bunch of strange people. Yeah, this is kind of a strange thing too. North Carolina, a felony to distribute the list of chemicals. Distributing this public list of chemicals to get can get you 15 years. That is the definition of a fascist state. To jail those that question the, the will of the state. So, North Carolina, uh, here they all are for you. Ohio, uh, oh, and I don't live in North Carolina. This, this is kind of interesting that, you know, if you have any of this, you distribute and you list the chemicals. All these wild chemicals, huh? Why would you have them? I don't have no idea. I don't even know what they are. I don't either. What kinds of limonene and lyric acid choline choline chloride. Probably have it in your house. Probably have it in your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all in the house cleaners, yeah. That's strange, weird. But anyway, we uh, we continue with our discoveries this evening here. Did you get anything good from the health ranger, Leo? Uh, no, actually I didn't. Oh. I haven't seen anything good on him recently. Yeah, check actually. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. I will get that in one minute. Hang on. Wow, here we go. Do, 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 do. Okay. So, anyway, we are still moving along here and moving along. Let me see. 